So as we prepare to get into our text, I want you to be thinking about the question. Um, when you think about the time that we live in, what do you think? How do you describe it? Maybe not just the time that, that we live in. Let's broaden it a little bit. The time between Jesus' first and second coming, how would we describe that? What type of characteristics define that age? And so what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be transitioning from chapter 2, which is what characterized the minister, into chapter 3 and 4, which will, what will characterize the ministry. So from the attributes and characteristics of godly ministers to the difficulties and trials and opposition that those ministers will face. Those ministry metaphors, the athlete, the farmer, the soldier, the vessel, the worker, the servant, those were to prepare Timothy to remind him of the hard work that lays in front of him, that is promised in front of him. So because ministry is hard work, and because what is said in this text applies not only to the church in Ephesus in Timothy's day, but to in every church in every day, we're going to say some hard things this morning. It should probably be a disclaimer on every message, but especially this one. We're going to say some hard things this morning. But there are things that need to be said. And one of the problems that happens in the church today is that difficult texts like this and things that this text addresses and exposes and brings to light out of the shadows gets ignored and swept under the rug and is treated with, with kid gloves because it might offend someone who's on their way to hell. So we're going to offend some people this morning. We're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about hell, and we're going to expose it. Why? Because it wants to creep into the church. And it will, and it does, trouble the heart's of weak people in the church. And so we need to address it. We need to be equipped to confront it, and we're going to do that this morning. And we're also going to look at some aspects of the Christian life uh, where we who walk with Christ know this constant tension, that I know that I have peace in Christ. I know that I am, I am loved before a holy God because of what Christ has done for me. I, I know that I've been reconciled to my heavenly Father. I know I can rest in him. Yet at the same time, I walk in a world that lives completely to the contrary, that opposes everything that my father holds dear. I am an alien and a sojourner and a stranger, and the place where I lay my head every night is not the place where I will reside for eternity. This is the tension within every believer every day. And the Christian life, like our passage, is marked by difficulty. But it promises victory. And that's what we're going to look at in our text this morning. So, in your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, 
unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning... that your word would go forth in power and confidence, that it would accomplish its purpose, that your spirit would speak through me and through the ears of the hearers. Lord, would this cause us to run to Christ and flee wickedness? Would this cause us to hold firmly to our hope in him? Would this cause us to examine ourselves and the things that we love? Lord, would this cause some, many within the sound of my voice who are everything that this passage describes, whose God is of their own making, who loves themselves, who loves their own pleasure, who is proud and haughty and disrespectful, who thinks that they are godly and righteous in their own eyes. They love everything but you. Lord, they need new hearts. They need new affections. And I pray for the work of your spirit. Pray that as you sanctify the believers, that you would transform the hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that are among us, that you will convict those who continue in unrepentant sin, that they, would, that they would crumble under the weight of the gospel, that they would run to the firm foundation and avoid the sinking sand that leads to death and hell and eternal torment apart from you. We ask for the preaching of your word this morning. It would be glorifying to you and edifying to us that we would be built up in Christ. Where we need to be broken down, let that happen. So that what is broken may be healed and grow back stronger in him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So right away, Paul gets our attention. But understand this. All right, Timothy, I've been setting you up for this. I've been telling you what will mark ministry. I've been preparing you for this. Don't miss it. But understand this. Paul is setting up the focus for the rest of the entire book. Newsflash, you're going to have opposition in ministry. Newsflash, the Christian life is not going to be easy. Newsflash, you're on the front lines and it's going to be especially hard for you. Understand this. 
that in the last days. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on verse 1 as we often do because we need to set the foundation. We need to set this up. What does he mean by the last days? What is this referring to? There was a previous age. There were previous days, former days, where God calls a people for himself out of, out of paganism. And he gives them laws and he gives them kings and he gives them prophets and he sets them in a land. But that wouldn't do because the people kept going after all these false gods. People couldn't save themselves. They ran out of festivals and uh, feasts because they were never meant to cleanse their sin. So someone else needed to come. There was one who would come, who would be the final priest, the final prophet, the final king, who would, who would be the final sacrifice, who would keep the law. And he ushers in the last days, the last age. This is what Hebrews 1 tells us. Uh, Hebrews 1 famously shows the contrast between the previous age, the, the, the former days. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, in the past, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Here you get the, the a person of the Son. The Son is truly God. He's the creator. I'm going on here. It's not up on the screen, but if you turn there, um, it's only a few pages to the, to the right in your Bible. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He's fully and truly God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what marks these last days? The person and work of Jesus Christ. The last days, this entire church age, the church age began when Jesus and in his incarnation came to earth and in his death and, and, and resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit sets a people aside, his church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against. This begins the church age, which continues until the age to come when Christ returns and he will destroy his enemies once the final enemy, death, is defeated. And that age to come will go on forever. There's the former age, the law and the prophets. There's the last days, the current age, of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look forward to the final age, the age to come. So what does that mean? Understand this. In the last days, read everyone who opens this book, everyone who reads this letter, you're in the last days. You live in the church age. Everyone who will ever read this letter, this is written to you. This is written to us. So we've got to lean in here because if Paul wants Timothy to know it, better bet we need to know it as well. So in these last days, there will come. Bible study technique, what is repeated? Notice all of the future promises in here. There will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self. And they will not get very far. We'll get there at the end. But notice this age is characterized by difficulty. He says the same thing in verse 12 of the same chapter. Notice the future promises, verse 12. 
Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He says the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Go back a couple pages in your Bible. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. This is pretty clear. This is what Paul expects to happen in the church age. This is what Paul wants Timothy to be prepared for. This is what we need to be prepared for. What will mark this age? There will come times of difficulty. Um, Many times when translating a Greek word, one English word won't do it. This word for, for difficulty, it's not like I stubbed my toe or, you know, I didn't get the score in the video game that I wanted. This is a word that is applied to demon-possessed men, wild animals, and raging seas. This is not a light, easy time. doesn't mean that everything in this age will be difficult, but it means it's certainly going to be uh, defined and there will be plenty of difficulty. John Stott puts it this way. As Christian vessels put out to, to sea, they shouldn't assume smooth passage. A boater, a man who, who drives his boat into the ocean and assumes that he's never going to see waves, he's never going to see difficulty, he's a fool. If he is not prepared, he's in for a rough ride. But Stott says we should expect to be buffeted by waves. We should expect storms and even hurricanes because that's what's promised. The church is not to be unprepared. So when I asked the question earlier, what do, how would you describe this age? What do you think about the time that we live in? We have an answer. And we don't have to look any further than what Jesus promised us. And I want to look at John 16, And I want us to kind of meditate on this verse as we go through. Because this is going to be the lens through which we see this entire text. And really see the rest of the book. And all of Scripture. John 16, 33, one short but powerful and immensely comforting verse. John 16, 33. He's telling the disciples about all the difficult things they're about to face, and he's going to leave them with the Holy Spirit. He's, he's preparing them for what will, what will come. This is the summary of everything that um, Jesus is saying here in the upper room in the night before he's betrayed, or the night that he's betrayed. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace, period. I am telling you everything that's going to happen so that you're not surprised. Why? Jesus told us it was going to happen. He's my peace. I can trust him. He not only knows what's coming, he's Lord of what's coming. And so we can have peace in him now. There's another guarantee. The first guarantee, there's peace in Christ. The second guarantee, in this world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. Again, it's not just light difficulty. Tribulation is hard, painful stuff. But... Here's the good news. Take heart. I have overcome the world. 
This is true for the disciples sitting before Jesus' feet and everyone who follows Christ throughout all of history. You have peace in him. You will have trials in this life, but take heart because our Savior has overcome this world. So if he has overcome this world, if nothing holds any sway or power over him, what comfort should that give us? What encouragement should we derive from that? And so as we look at some of these things, remember the peace that we have in Christ. Remember that we are to take heart even when things are difficult. Why? Because our Savior has overcome. And if you are in him, you overcome with him. So before we go any further, I want you to think about this for a moment. Are you surprised when life gets difficult? Are you prepared for life to get difficult? Or are you one of those people who goes through life just assuming, if I think good thoughts, if anything good, will ha- if anything good can happen, it will, those stupid bumper stickers, uh, and then you are constantly surprised when difficulty comes? Do you just assume things will go well, and why? Now, I'm not telling you to be pessimistic. I'm not telling you to assume that everything will be bad all the time. That's not what Paul's saying. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm telling you to be realistic. Know the world we live in. Know we live in a fallen world. Every time you stub your toe, be reminded, I live in a fallen world. Every time you get a paper cut, every time uh, you, you drop an egg on the floor, and like, I, now i got to clean this up. The world has fallen, and I'm fallen. But we also have a sworn enemy. When you follow Christ, there's a target on your forehead and he hates you because he hates your master. This is the world where Jesus says he is the prince of the power of the air. He has dominion. He is a dog on Christ's leash, but he is a dog nonetheless. And so difficulty comes because of our fallen sinful nature, but because we have an enemy who wants nothing more than to destroy you and destroy the church and wants you to trip up. So the other danger on the other side is that I think right now it's become popular for Christians to have an unhelpful and an unbiblical optimism about the world and the culture. Jesus says, And a chapter earlier in John 15, the world will hate you and will persecute you because of me. But there are many well-meaning Christians who are promoting in our day uh, that the world is going to love you and the world is going to somehow embrace Christianity. The same world that John tells us in 1 John not to love and not to pursue after. So we always have to be careful about the ditch on one end. Don't be pessimistic and walk around, woe is me, as if we are defeated. Christian, Christ is victorious. You are not defeated. But, but be realistic and don't fall to the other side and assume that everything, that the, the tribulation that Jesus promises, the difficulty that, that Paul promises, will somehow, will somehow have, have heaven on earth and distract us from the kingdom of God and look for our hope here. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. The church of Christ, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There will be skirmishes that it looks like the enemy wins, and we'll get to that later in the text. But we know the battle 
was won on the cross, and their end is inevitable. But here's where our hope is, 1 Peter 1, 13. Verse Peter 1.13, in this life, Christian, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully. How much of your hope should be in this world? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be, in the future, brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's the revelation of Jesus Christ? When Christ is revealed on the last day, that's where our hope is fully set. That's my savior. That's my home. That's my, my, my king. That kingdom, that kingdom will last forever. This one will not. That's why our hope is fully there. But we have peace here, even though it's temporary. But it is dangerous if our hope is divided, if we're looking for security and hope and peace here, and in governments, and in, peace, and, in, and in peoples. Praise God for times of peace. Civil peace, and political peace, and national peace. But that is nothing compared to the peace that passes understanding. And that is where our hope is. So, I want to make sure we're not falling off one side or the other. So before we get into this, this, this list, let's just summarize. The culture will be wicked. Guaranteed. The church will have difficulty. Guaranteed. But she will prevail. Guaranteed. Because her bridegroom, who has prevailed, is coming for her. Never lose sight of that. All right. Let's get to our next section here. Verse 2. Um, so there's a, another list here for people will be. Notice the certainty again. Paul's not shocked. We shouldn't be shocked. There are 20 descriptions here, and so we're not going to get into all these. Um, you could give sermon illustrations and examples of all these. We can think of many examples of all these. We can turn on the news. We can look out the window and see examples of all this stuff. But what's Paul doing? When Paul gives lists, Paul doesn't give exhaustive lists, meaning this is everything and every way that people will make things difficult for the church. This is just a representative list. Paul is trying to drive home a point. He is painting a picture of the world system that, that creeps its way into the, the church. This reads, with the alliteration and the patterns in the Greek, this reads like a passionate rant. Paul's going off here. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So what do I want you to notice? Anyone notice what's repeated here? Love. What is at the heart of all of this wickedness? Misplaced love. Notice, they love themselves. They love money. They love things that are not good. They love everything, including pleasure, but they do not love God. This is why the first commandment is the first and greatest commandment for a reason. 
We are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything else builds from that. That is the foundation. Loving the true and living God. Because there are only two options. You will love God or you will love everything else in his place. And so I think it's appropriate. We don't often do these things, but I think it is appropriate. In the national religious observance of our country, in a month that is characterized by love. But think about a month that our culture calls Pride Month. This word here for the proud, the pride. Uh, In the Greek, it is one who makes more of himself than reality justifies. One who makes more of themselves than reality justifies. Self-importance always leads to godlessness. Because the more important you are, the less you need God. The Bible tells us that pride goes before a fall. And our world celebrates it. Hangs banners to it. And what is it that they're celebrating? Love of self. And certainly love of pleasure. Not loving what is good. And this is what the world wants to train us to do. Well, you need to love them as they want to be loved. The problem here in Ephesus and the problem in our day is that loves are misplaced. People don't understand what love is. They think if I just feel good enough and everyone affirms me in the way that, that, that I feel, then I will, I will feel loved and I'll be complete. That lasts for about five seconds. And the world thinks... That if you just march with us, if you think with us, you'll feel love too. This is the problem. That pride goes before a fall. The passage we read in Matthew 17 earlier, this is the house of sinking sand. This will erode under your feet because it's not rooted on anything solid. I love this thing this week. I love this thing this week. But if you love yourself above all else, you are God. And you better be able to save yourself. Here's the problem. People need new hearts. They are heartless, as Paul says, right in the center of this list. They're dead. They need to be born again. I know this is not a a, a popular conversation in The tool of the enemy is to desensitize us to these things. But we need to recognize that the gospel speaks to this. The gospel speaks to the the pride and the foolishness and the arrogance and the sexual immorality of the world. Because that won't last. You can have sex with as many people as you want. You can celebrate whatever you want. But you're going to die. And then what? What will you stand on? But when the Spirit of God works in you, we can't correct people's behavior. We can't correct people into the kingdom. We can't moralize people into the kingdom. But when the Spirit of God works in you and transforms your your, your heart, he also transforms your affections. 
He teaches you what to love. As Paul says, he trains you how to cry out, Abba, Father. He shows you the love of the Father in sending the Son for you. He shows you the hope of the last days, that there is one who is love. And in this love, he took on flesh. And we know love because he gave his life for us. And we know love because he didn't count his life of anything if it meant that you would live. And we know love because he sent his spirit. Right before John 16, he tells him, I'm sending my spirit. He will help you. He will comfort you. He will remind you. The love of God, as we looked at earlier in chapter 1, is that the Father, Son, and Spirit before all time said, I'm going to set a wicked, unpretty bride. A thankless and rebellious people, I'm going to set them apart from my son. I'm going to send him as their bridegroom. And he's going to pay the dowry that they would be his bride forever. He will prepare a place for them. And he will give them the greatest feast they will ever experience. And it will never end. That is love. That in spite of your ugliness, not celebrating it. God says, I will make you beautiful in my son. This is love. This is the heart of the gospel, all puns intended. This is the problem, misplaced loves. So as you talk to people, as you think about this, as you, we should have answers for these things, but we should be asking ourselves, what, how are they defining love? But what do I love? What do they love? And how can we speak to that? Because everyone wants to be loved. And you can only love yourself for so long before you let yourself down. You can only love pleasure for so long before it wears out. You can only love money for so long before it disappoints you. But there is one who will never leave, who will never forsake, and who will never disappoint. So, these people will mark the days. But before going further, it actually gets worse than what you think it is. This sounds like a pretty reprehensible list, but notice what Paul says next. Having the appearance of godliness. Wait a second. You mean these aren't outright pagans? This is not what's going on out there? These are just the religious people. These are the people in your gatherings who appear to be godly. This is how Jesus speaks of the Pharisees. Matthew 23. He has a whole chapter on woe to you Pharisees. Just look at a couple verses. The Pharisees, the most religious people of Jesus' day. Chapter 23, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside is full of greed and indulgence. The, the plate, the cup here, it's you. You look all good and pretty and all cleaned up on the outside, but inside. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and outside you may also be clean. we got to remember this. The gospel is not clean yourself up, moralize yourself on the outside, and then the inside will be clean. We are, uh, I had lunch with a friend this week, and he was asking me the difference um, between uh, Islam and Christianity, between Judaism and Christianity, and he's kind of assumed that we all work the same way. Here's the big difference. We understand that cleanliness begins on the inside, and then it comes to the outside. We understand that we need new hearts. When you wash the inside of the cup, 
We will, we, will, we will learn how to wash the outside. Judaism, Islam, every other religion on the planet. Do all these things, and then by your own effort, you can clean yourself up on the inside. You can't do it. It's exactly what Jesus is saying to, to the Pharisees here. He goes on, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Sometimes the people who are the most moral and put together on the outside are the most dead and wicked on the inside. This is the history of Israel. Read the prophets. They appear godly. They, they, they attend the, the feast. They tithe. They sacrifice animals, but they live completely contrary. It's no different today. Many churches preach comfortable gospels, ignoring sin, enabling sin, making people comfortable on the way to hell. Hey, you know what? Jesus loves you just the way you are. You don't need to change a thing. And, and matter of fact, let me give you a pillow. Let me help you to prop your head up, prop your feet up. Here's some, here's some popcorn. Here's a, here's a soda. You just kick back because Jesus should love you. Aren't you so lovely? As the gospel that gets tens of thousands of views on, on, on YouTube, that brings in hundreds of people through the door and sends thousands of people to hell. Or the other self-righteous gospel that I think we're probably more guilty of. That, oh, the sins are only out there. That those are the sins of the world. That those are the sins of, of those people. You, you're, you're the good people. You don't have to worry about sin. That's, that, that's for them. But they ignore the sins of the heart. Because let's be honest, if we look back at that list, that's every one of us. Every one of us in this room is guilty of every one of those things. Even the healthiest visible church is a mixed bag. So let us not become the prideful. Let us not become the self-confident. You know, it's so telling about the month that we find ourselves in that now Google forces onto your calendar. That it is pride that opens up the door to everything else on that list. Because the moment you are confident in yourself, the moment you hold your, your, yourself high, you are setting yourself up for failure. I mean, we know this in the simple things. Isn't it always the person's like, oh, I'm, I'm the best at this game, lose. Oh, I got this, drop everything on the floor. I always do this, fail that time. Every time pride goes before a fall. You name a whole month after yourself, what do you think's coming? We could easily be the one who is tempted from last week. Remember last week, verse 26 of chapter 2, that there are some, these are believers here. Paul is hoping that they are, that God grants them repentance, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Every one of us keeps eating the cheese until we walk into the cage. Every one of us had need to be reminded of the gospel. And, walk, and drawn out. This is why Paul warns and encourages in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, he talks exactly about this. Verse 12 of chapter 10. Therefore, 
Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Here's the most important part. God is faithful. More future promises here. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may not be able to endure it. Temptation's not new. It's not unique to you. You're not the only one struggling. But God is faithful. God does not tempt you, but he permits temptation so that you learn and you grow. And he also provides the means of escape so that you run to him. So be careful that we're not prideful and look at this list and think that's everyone else because every one of us in this room can easily be ensnared with these things. And here's the problem. Those who have this appearance of godliness deny its power. Those who are comfortable in a sin deny its power. Okay, so what does that mean? Here's what that means. What does it mean to deny the power of godliness? Okay, you sit in church on a Sunday morning. You claim Christ, you hear sermons, you sing, you, you tithe, you do all of the, uh, you use all the uh, Christian-approved curse words, you, you know, you, you use all the, uh, the, the, the stuff that everyone expects you to do, yet you let sin reign in your heart and not Christ. Yet you walk as a living contradiction. You can sing the songs, you can read the passages that Jesus Christ conquered the grave, that Jesus Christ set the captive free from sin's dominion, yet you act like Christ has no power over your life. Yet you live as if you are still a slave to sin and not righteousness. Yet you live as if sin's dominion has more power than the cross. Romans 6, we've looked at this the last few weeks, it's appropriate again. Romans chapter 6, it's the baptism imagery. But here's what it points us to. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's power. That the sin that we hate so much is brought to nothing on the cross of Christ. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, he'll never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lived, he lives to God. So you also, if you're united with Christ, that is true for you. Sin no longer has dominion over him, it no longer has dominion over you. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. It's important to distinguish between dominion and influence. Dominion, rule to be dominated by to be a subject to. If you are in Christ, sin does not rule in your life. You are not its subject. But it does influence us. 
But the power is in the gospel. Power is not in our sin. But let's not become prideful and think that we are no longer influenced. That's not what I'm saying. There's a difference between being dominated by sin, which is what we are apart from Christ, and influenced by sin, which is what we are in a wicked, fallen world. Make sense? All right. Avoid such people, Paul says. They need to be reminded of the finished work of Christ. Not enabled, not treated as, as, as co-laborers. Don't let this stuff continue. If you don't discipline it, it will grow. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this, um, 9 through 13. I wrote you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Pretty much what we're saying here. We're not isolationists. We're not going to go uh, dig a, a, a cave in the woods somewhere and, and, and ignore everything going on around us. They need the gospel. We're to be salt and light. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a viler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? When the world says, judge not lest you be judged, I am to judge in the church. We are. I don't pronounce condemnation or judgment on someone. That's not my role. But in the church, yes, it is. God judges those outside. Purge the evil one from among you. Because if you don't, look what happens in the very next verse in our text. Verse 6, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. If you don't discipline them, they will influence others. They creep into households. Darkness does not walk in the front door unless you let it. But if you leave a crack in the back door, it will slide in. It prefers the back door. It's like predators who are stalking prey. You know, you watch those, those uh, nature shows where the cheetah is crouching behind the bushes and looking for a place to disguise itself. It doesn't approach them from the front. It stalks from the back looking for the weak ones. This is exactly what's going on here. And when they creep into households, they capture. This is a word of a, for taking prisoners of war. Taking your enemy hostage because it's a battle. And who do they capture? Weak women. Okay, I told you we're going to say some things that um, are not going to be politically correct. But as you know me, this is hard for me. I've got to get past my politically correct inclinations. Um, this, let's look at the word weak first. Weak. So those who are easily influenced from either idleness or foolishness, often a combination of both, idleness and foolishness. Now, Paul is not saying all women, but there are certainly some who are weak and easily influenced. There are certainly some who will fall prey. While the men are working, they target the women, all puns intended, to divide the household. I thought about this during the week, this week. I always wonder, why do the Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house during the week in the middle of the day? You ever think about that? They're coming after women. 
your husband's not home. I want to come and influence you. I want to creep into your house and give you a gospel of death. It has been the same since the beginning. Let's look back at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Again, this is not popular. We don't like the idea of the, the, the weaker vessel in, in, our, in, in our day and age. I'm sorry. If you don't believe me, let's arm wrestle. Okay. First Corinthians chapter two verse eleven. Let women, I love you. Here's the thing. You are you're, you're supposed to be you are supposed to be dainty and uh, feminine. Those are those are those are, are are good things. You're not supposed to be brutes like us, but we are brutes. Uh, let a woman learn quietly, with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. This is not a popular message. But the same thing that happened in the garden is happening now. Satan says, oh, the man's over there, let me talk to the woman. Salesmen do this, do this trick, right? Oh, my, my husband's not home. We don't, we don't have to wait for your husband to get home. Let's talk now. A little boat that is tossed by every wind and wave of, of, of doctrine, that is not anchored, it's going to hit every hidden reef under, the, the, under the, the surface. And it will never make it to safety. Especially a boat that is weighed down by sin, and that's these women. Weak women burdened with sin. So these women burdened with sin, this is how God has wired women. They want love. They want peace, they want comfort, and they're desperate for it. And these false teachers prey on it. And they hope to find peace in false gospels. But here's the problem, there's no power in a false gospel. And it's not just women who are being deceived. But women especially, you also, you also you offer false promises of assurance and peace and uh, comfort. And you're going to sell a lot of books. So, um, demographically speaking, women are the overwhelming supporter of televangelists, word of faith preachers, prosperity gospel, self-help teachers. If there were not women buying these, these uh, books and going to these, these conferences, all these false te- many of these false teachers would need to find a new line of work. That's just the reality of it. But it's not just women. How many people are so burdened with their guilt that they look to everything else but Christ? How many people are so burdened, they feel so heavy, they run to, I want this, I want this, I want this, and they never find peace? There is only one gospel with power. There is only one who can save. But these women are burdened with sins, and they're led astray by various passions. The same word we looked at last week for young men. And Paul tells Timothy, flee these youthful passions. Women manipulated by emotion. Women with, with, with deep need to be connected and to be loved and to find comfort are led astray by those very desires that can be good and beautiful things but are distorted by sin. Led away from the truth, led away from their husbands, led away from the church. 
and I was just speaking pastorally, it is sad how many times I've seen this here in this congregation. Women in our church, listening to other men, listening to other women, getting their, their counsel other places. There are so many great resources out there. Ask me, I'm happy to tell you. But I can't count how many times I've women who I am responsible for as a pastor come up to me like, I've been reading this book, and it said, why are you reading that book? Because I got a flyer in the mail. Because I saw a YouTube video, and it sounded good. There are so many things that have the stamp of Christian on it and are not helpful. Seek counsel first. Because these same women, verse 7, they're always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Doesn't this perfectly fit our online age? Always learning but never arising at the knowledge of the truth. Let's be honest. We can scroll YouTube, Facebook, Instagram for hours and not find one true thing. You can watch most news stations and Twitter feeds and not find truth at all. Information is not the problem. Truth is the problem. Pilate famously asked Jesus, what is truth? The world is still asking. And the world doesn't have an answer. The world can't even tell you what a woman is. You want to ask them and look to them for truth? Here's the truth. There is one true and living God. There is one Son, Jesus Christ. There is one way of salvation. There is one way, truth, and life. Here's the truth. The faith, the good deposit, the gospel, everything Paul has been telling Timothy to hold dear, that is the truth. And if you are learning and learning and learning and it never leads you to that, you are wasting your time. Why? Because if you have the truth, it shows you Christ. And it shows you hope, and it shows you peace, and it shows you victory. And that the enemy desperately wants to steal. And so we must ask ourselves, how much of what we learn actually leads us to truth? Think about it. How much of the information that you input into your head points you to Christ? I'm not saying that you have to watch sermons all day. plenty of sermons out there and plenty of great things to watch and to listen to and to input and to read and put in your mind. Do that. Praise God for YouTube because we become better cooks. I fixed my lawnmower last week. (laughs) That's, That's a true story. It's, there, there are good things there. But like any flea market or ancient bazaar, our enemy lies there too. Because right along with the cooking videos and uh, how to take the drive belt out of your lawnmower videos are the people who are lovers of self, prideful, lovers of pleasure, who want you to follow after everything else but God. That is why we need to guard ourselves. Daniel, I love this. I'm just throwing this in there for, as a freebie. Daniel 12, 4, he, he prophesied this. But you, Daniel, or the Lord prophesied to Daniel, shut up the words and seal this book until the time of the end. What's going to happen until the end? What's going to mark these last days? Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Kind of sounds like the last days to me. Um, 
Paul gives us an illustration here in verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8. Uh, we're not going to get into this too much. Uh, who are these, uh, are these guys? Um, they come out of the Jewish oral tradition. If you do a word search in your Bible, you're not going to find them. Uh, the Jewish oral tradition uh, says that they were two of Pharaoh's ma- magicians who faced off against Moses. Right? Um, and here's what you need to know about them. Even if the, the names aren't, Paul knows more about them than, than, than we do. So um, even if the names aren't in our, in our Bible, the principle is. Remember, those magicians, they were successful for a moment. The first, the, uh, first couple plagues, they, they kept right up with Moses. They, they uh, turned the water to blood. You know, they, uh, their uh, staffs became snakes, you know, that kind of stuff. But it didn't last very long. They couldn't create. They, they, they couldn't escape the uh, gnats. They couldn't create the uh, the the uh, boils. They finally told uh, Pharaoh, "You need to get the, these these people out of here because we're out of tricks. Like we pulled everything out of, out of our pocket. There's nothing left in our um, magician's handbook." Here's here's the whole point. The truth and the faith which Paul promotes now is as clear now as it was then. They oppose the one true God. Therefore, they oppose the way, the truth, and the life. Paul says here in verse 8, just as uh, Jonas and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. He is comparing the men of this day to the, 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 the false magicians of that day, corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith. Today's false teachers do the same thing. They look like proper prophets. They wear the suit. They've got the lingo. They use a lot of the same words, the same mannerisms. They show up on the same time on on, on Sunday morning. They write a lot of books and make a lot of money. They sound Christian. Just like they rose up in Moses' day, in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, they're going to raise up today. And they will be convincing, very convincing for a time, but this is why verse 9 is here. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as it was to, of those two men. Falsehood cannot last. The folly will be exposed. The facade will be uncovered. Heaven and earth will pass away. Everything will be gone. But my words, never. But my work, never. This is why the new age, the only hope of the new age is the person and work of Christ. Because everything else will not last. It will not get very far. So, brothers and sisters, take heart. As John likes to say, fear not, little children, because we know what's in store for those who upset the faith. We know their doom is sure. Our king has overcome the world. Our king is coming again. And as Paul told us a few verses earlier, if we endure, we will reign with him. This is a picture of the age. It's not going to last very long. Let me give you a summary, a couple pieces of application, and we will close. Here's a summary. It should be up on screen. The saints will have difficulties in the last days. As in the former days, people will love what is evil and not God. But they won't prosper very long. They will be exposed. We have victory through the one who gave Moses victory. One more time, the saints will have difficulties in the last days, as in the former. People will love what is evil and not God, 
They won't prosper very long. They will be exposed. And we have victory through the one who gave Moses victory. All right, three points of application here. Application to women. First, um, and you can leave that summary up on the screen in case anyone else is still writing it down. Thankfully, uh, this is the exception, not the rule in this, this body. Like, I want to encourage the women for a moment. Don't think I was coming here to discourage women. I am here to challenge weak women. But I am so impressed with the discernment and the maturity of the women in this body. I hear stories again and again and again how women are giving each other godly counsel and who study and love the word of God, who are not afraid to confront error, who are not afraid to engage with the difficult parts of the book and embrace how God has designed you as women and rejoice how God has designed you in women. And so I want to encourage you women, keep it up. But I also want to challenge you to be on guard because people will sneak in because they have. And they will come after you, especially if you don't believe the power of the gospel, especially if you're on the fringes, if you're not connected, especially if you dwell in the shadows of idleness and foolishness, especially if you believe everything you hear, especially without a strong leader in the home. That's just the reality of it. Lions do not go after weak elephants when there's a bull around. This is why the biblical pattern that faithful men, chapter 2, verse 2, entrusted with the word, entrust to also, entrust to other men also, guard the good deposit. So, application number two, men, when Eve was deceived, the responsibility was on Adam because he did not protect his wife. He did not protect what God had given him. He did not protect the word of God that God had promised to him. So men, we are tasked with protecting our family and the church. And let me tell you the sobering truth, the reason why I brought all this stuff about June up. Because if you don't teach your family, someone else will. If you don't lead your family spiritually, they will follow after other gods, and they will creep into your house. If you don't disciple your children, someone else will, and I guarantee you, someone is discipling your children right now. The world is aiming all this stuff at children. They want to catechize your your, your children and offer them up as human sexual sacrifices. Men, there is a call on our lives in this day. Worship and biblical instruction is not just for Sundays. You brought your family to church. You did well. That is one day. Sunday is to reorient us, to worship God, to set the tone for the rest of the week, to take our our marching orders, to be encouraged around the saints because we're going off into a battlefield. Begin with a pattern of spiritual, theological, and doxological Examples in your home. Be a man of prayer. Be a man of the word. Be a man of song and encouragement. It is manly to sing. Jesus sang. We can do it. Do it in our home. And so simple little gift for Father's Day. Men, every one of you who's a husband, father, soon-to-be husband, pick up 
Donald Whitney's uh, Family Worship. There will be a bunch of them in the back. You can see Dylan at the sound booth. Uh, just a, a little book, an easy book to read. But just simply engaging with your family spiritually for five to ten minutes a day will reap a huge benefit. Your wife will thank you and your children will thank you. Little deposit every day. Uh, finally, to everyone, there is no power in any other gospel. Anything else on this world that offers you peace and hope and comfort will not do it, cannot do it. Any other love is not loving. Your pride, your self-confidence, your love of pleasure, it will condemn you, it will kill you. Because we know that sin and difficulty will come into the world. But when sin threatens us, when false teachers arise, we remember Christ. We remember our Savior has overcome the world. We remember his kingdom. His church will stand in truth because he is truth. He is our hope, and he is coming soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this seeks in, seeps into our hearts and our minds. Lord, that you expose the lies of the flesh and the world and the devil. All the things that we love that are not lovely. Lord, we know love. Because you have loved us and sent your son for us. And he showed his love by laying down his life. And the Spirit reminds us of this love every day when we are tempted to be discouraged and look for peace and love in other places. Lord, I pray that you protect your, your, your church. Pray that you encourage men how God has designed them to lead and teach and protect their families. Encourage women how God has designed them to nurture and love, in compassion, and in gentleness, and in steadfastness, that our women would be women of the word, who are bold for the sake of Jesus Christ, who know how to spot and call out errors, and protect one another, and protect their children, because the world would creep into our homes and divide our families. We ask you to protect our families, raise our children up to know you, Lord, help us to remember that you have overcome the world. Let us never forget those simple words. words. Our king is victorious. Christ has conquered. The lamb of God reigns forever. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.